Turn with me to John chapter 5. I've been away for the past two Sundays, uh, at least on Sunday morning, two weeks ago, and Sunday evening as well. And then last week I preached at our, our daughter church at Christ Church and uh, in the morning. I was back here in the evening. And uh, so it's, it feels like I've been gone a, a while, even though I've been here in between those things. But it's good to be Good to be with you this morning, back in the book of John. We're going to begin chapter 5 today, looking at those first 18 verses. Follow along. God's inerrant word. After this, now this this is the healing of, of an official's son, in the region of Galilee. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic, called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up and while I am going another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. As there was a crowd in the place, afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more, so that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for both the written word and the living word. The written word that tells us about our dear Savior Jesus, the living word. Thank you for speaking to us in language that we can comprehend. And we ask now that you bless it 
in its reading, in our hearing, and now in the preaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever been rejected? I'm going to just venture a guess that everyone in this room, from the smallest, now the infants, we got several infants, we celebrated you know, some of the new babies uh, yesterday, uh, the ladies had a wonderful gathering here on the grounds and, and lots of good yummy things and pretty stuff and they threw a party for the moms and the babies. Uh, we had some out of town, couldn't be here, but still uh, they had a good time. I, have, I had Carol give me some pictures, I'm going to send some pictures out to you tomorrow so you can see some of, some of the festivities. But uh, outside of the infants, the little bitty ones in mama's arms, I suspect everyone in here has, has experienced some level of and some form of rejection. You know, the job interview, nope, you're just not what we're looking for. You know, from that to the child on the playground, who is the last one to be picked for whatever the activity is, right? Now, you know, if you're the last one picked, even though somebody has to take you, they don't want you. And that's a form of rejection. So everyone experiences some level of, some form of rejection. And perhaps sometimes the rejection goes hand in hand with misrepresentation. Maybe you were rejected because you were misrepresented. Well, that's, that's exactly what's going on here in this passage, is it's easy to see the rejection, <clears throat> very easy to see the rejection that Jesus is experiencing from these people. But he's also being misrepresented. They're not representing him properly. They're saying he's breaking the Sabbath. Well, he's the giver of the Sabbath. He's the Lord. He's the keeper of the Sabbath. So he's both misrepresented and he's rejected. And so let me just say this right on the front end. If you've ever been rejected, you know, we, we, we don't say this. We don't say these sort of things just to be spouting off theological niceties or theological uh, Truths that, that, well, you know, just so I can sound theological, that our Lord Jesus Christ is a great high priest and he's sympathetic in all, all ways with you. He can understand everything you're going through. That's not just pious spouting. That's true. And when we say Jesus Christ represented us, he was our substitute in everything that we need it's the truth. See, he didn't just die on the cross to take away your sins. He lived a perfect life standing in your place and my place so that when we're rejected, when we're misrepresented, when we're sinned against, when whatever, you name it, he did it for us so that we can be saved from and we can be comforted in those times. That's remarkable, isn't it? That Jesus, nothing 
ever that you will experience in your life, Jesus Christ did not stand as your substitute for that and take your pain for that and your distress for that and provide comfort for you in that. That's the sermon. Amen. That's really, that's really the, the things that come out of this passage. But we need to look at the details because there are some... There's some tricky things in this passage. This passage shows us just what we've seen already in the first four chapters. Uh, our, our Lord is, a, is the Lord of compassion. He's a God of compassion. We just moved from one episode with the son who's, who's sick and uh, the Lord heals him. And we move here to Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem. So he's, we've already seen him in his ministry in, 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 in uh, Judea. And then he went to the Galilee region. Now he's back. And the occasion he's back is a feast. We're not told which feast. It was one of three feasts that required travel to the city. That would have been Passover. That would have been uh, Pentecost. And that was the, uh, the, the uh, Tabernacles. Because of the way John uses the feast word here, he uses it elsewhere in chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 in reference to Passover or tabernacles. So this is probably feast of Passover, the feast of tabernacles. But the point is, if it were really that important, John would have told us which one. He's just simply giving us the historical context this is one of the feasts Jesus comes back for. Remember, he's the one who gave them. So here he is on the front end of this. He's keeping the law. It's interesting how John mixes this together. Because they're going to accuse Jesus of not keeping the Sabbath. And John starts the whole thing by saying, oh yeah, he kept the Sabbath. He keeps everything. He came to keep the feast, whichever one it was, doesn't matter. He was because he, he was going to do it. He gave it. He keeps it. Everything he commanded, he fulfills it all. So John begins weaving this little theological picture for us here. And he goes into Jerusalem and the and, and it's like John and this, the, the language is, is like Jesus made, as we would say today, he made a beeline for this pool. Of all the things that he could have done, the moment he entered into Jerusalem, he goes to this pool that has these big colonnades and they've got some shelter over it and people are laying under there around this pool. Now I have to address something here because some of you probably were not reading the ESV following along with me. You maybe had the New American Standard or something else. And you noticed, or perhaps you're reading the ESV and you noticed, wait a minute, it skipped from verse 3 to verse 5. And you didn't listen to the rest, if you noticed that. You didn't listen to the rest of what I read because you were looking in the margin to find out if it said anything about the skipped verse. And down at the margin it says, some manuscripts say Bethesda or Bethsaida. Some insert holy or in part. 
waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in after the stirring of the water was healed, whatever disease he had. So some of your translations may have actually had that in there as a verse 4. The ESV translators chose to omit it because it doesn't find itself in the early reliable Greek manuscripts. It's a much later addition. It's more like an amendation. It's more like a it's more like an ESV or Reformation Study Bible footnote down at the bottom. But it somehow got worked into the passage over time. Now there are all sorts of suppositions as to well wonder why somebody would have done that. Well, probably just trying to make sense of why were these people laying around a pool? Well, most of the commentators make the point today that that's not such a difficult thing to answer. One commentator even reminds us that here in the United States, uh, it's not far removed, and in fact, there are people who still do this, but it's not very far removed in our history that it was very common for people who had ailments to travel to mineral springs. There's one not far from us in Hot Springs, North Carolina. Uh, Brad grew up in, in Arkansas. you got Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a very popular place. People coming off the... the uh, the, uh, the, the trail, uh, the Appalachian Trail these days come off into hot springs, come down, they look filthy and dirty and grimy and you hope they don't sit next to you at the cafe and eat because they stink. Uh, but some of them uh, have sense enough to stop at the hot springs before they get to the Smoky Mountain Diner and they clean up a little bit before they come in. They sit in the hot springs and they... they it's like a sauna. They, they cleanses. It gets all the pores cleaned out. And they wash their hair. And, and they feel a whole lot better. It helps their achy joints. In the 19th century, it was very popular for people in the low country of South Carolina and Georgia to travel up into the foothills of North Carolina where there were other hot springs around Flat Rock in that area. They went there because it made their bodies feel better to get in the hot mineral water that was bubbling up. And so commentators suggest now that probably what's going on here is that this, this, this portico, this colonnade, was built over a, a spring. Some of you have been to Yellowstone. I mean, you wouldn't want to get in those springs. Uh, <clears throat> you know, if you ever, you, one of the things we did... With the kids, when our first round at Yellowstone, we took the little, they give you a little thermometer, you know, like we have now for our foreheads, and you can point that laser down into the, into the springs, and it'll tell you how hot it is, and it's way past cooking anything. You know, you'd be, if you went in there, you, you'd be fried to a crisp real quickly. But... You also know that one of the reasons people go to Yellowstone is not to look at the nice, calm, bubbly water, 
but to look at it when it actually begins to spew. Old Faithful and some of the others, the water really starts moving. Well, you can imagine in a culture that thinks something something outside of that water is causing it to happen might come up with the idea that an angel, this must be something an angel did. Whereas it may have well been simply the bubbling of a spring every so often. And so the people worked into it something. Jesus here just simply says, hey, you know what? Uh, You don't need that water. No matter what's going on here at the pool, I've just given you what I think is going on at the pool and why you don't need verse 4 in there because it wasn't there early in our manuscripts and that does not affect at all what we believe about the inerrancy of Scripture. But Jesus just simply speaks to the man, shows his compassion, and meets his need. In these colonnade, roofed colonnade areas, there were a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One had been there for 38 years. Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. And we're not told again by John how Jesus knew this. Maybe someone said, see that man over there? He's been there 38 years. But that's not what John says. John more often communicates Jesus knowing things to communicate his his deity, his his divine nature, that he is an all-knowing God. You say, but he took on flesh, and so wasn't he a man? And men don't know everything. Uh, you know, I have to. I want to remind you this every week, as long as I'm living. Yes, he was fully man, but he was also fully God. And he did not set aside his divinity in order to be full man. You say, boy, I don't understand how that works, being all man and all. God. I don't either, and and. We're not going to. That's part of what I prayed this morning, praising God for his incomprehensibility, that he is who he is. Don't worry about not understanding some of these things. Here's the thing. If you believe it, God will give you more and more understanding. The old, the old truth that's been spouted by many of the divines through the history of the church, we believe in order to understand. That is truth. You say, but I'm never going to fully under. Guess why? Guess why you're never going to fully understand the hypostatic union, the divine and the human in one person? Because he's God and you're not and I'm not. And that's what makes this whole thing so wonderful is that we have a God that's bigger than us in everything. But he's also a God who's compassionate. So Jesus knew that he had already been there a long time. And he asked him this question. Do you want to be healed? Is that what you will? Is that what your desire is? And the sick man said, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. I can't get in there to feel any better. 
Jesus took that as a yes. I do want to be healed. And I think you would have taken that as a yes. I want to be healed. That's my desire. I would do anything to be healed. And Jesus said, get up, take up your bed and walk. And I want you to notice something. At once, the man was healed. That's what separates Jesus Christ from all the pseudo faith healers of every generation, including our own day. No, no pseudo faith healer, and they're all pseudos, by the way, no faith healer can say, get up and walk, and someone gets up and walks. Why? Because they're not God. Why could Jesus do it? Because he was God. He possessed all. Here's the beautiful thing about our Savior, Jesus Christ. In his compassion, he both has the desire to do for us, but, and he has the ability to do for us. Again, something I've, I've said here many times, you all have had those times when it was your desire to do something for someone. And you couldn't. You did not possess the ability. It may have been a lack of money, may have been, you name it. Your heart was, I want to I fix that. I want to do something. That's what I want to do. But you couldn't because you didn't possess the ability to do it. And that's the beauty of our Savior Jesus. He has the ability. Do you want to be healed? The man said, I would love to. I would do anything. I've been trying to get in that water. They say that water will make me feel better. Jesus said, you don't need the water. You don't need anything intermediate. I want to do this right now. Get up and take your pallet and go home. Did Jesus not know what day it was? Did he not know it was the Sabbath? Absolutely. Jesus was keeping the Sabbath. Because our confession tells us, and it's based on Old Testament. If you go back and look up the, new, the, the biblical citations in your Westminster Confession of Faith for paragraph 8, chapter 21, when it gets to the mercies, acts of mercies and necessity, all those are Old Testament references. The Lord didn't give the Lord's Day to be onerous. Isaiah said it's a delight, didn't he? We just read that a few minutes ago. That if we don't turn our foot to the left or the right to do our own pleasure, but we do his pleasure on this day. One day, let one day look like heaven on this earth. And call it a delight. It'll be a delightful thing to your soul. The Lord's compassion extends to the physical needs. Notice something here. When this happens, Jesus does not say, do you want to be healed? Yeah, I would love to. I've been trying to get in the water. Do you believe I can heal you? He doesn't ask that question, does he? Faith is not even an issue here. Jesus doesn't need your faith 
to heal you. Jesus doesn't need your faith to change you. In fact, until he changes you, you can't have faith. Man, don't you hate these, these, these pseudo preachers? If you had enough faith, brother, you'd get up and walk from there. May God be nice. May God be merciful to them and save them from this stupidity. Jesus doesn't ask if you have enough faith. He doesn't say, if you have enough faith, then I can do this. Because what Jesus does for us doesn't depend on us, y'all. It depends on him, period. And he just shows his, his compassion and he just lavishes it on this man, even though faith is not even an item here. Second. Oh, I, I need to mention one more thing. Notice how the Jews question him. The Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. That moves us right into the second point. The Jews' legalism blinds them to the needs of men and the glory of the Lord. I just find that the most curious question. But it betrays the fact that they know nothing of the Lord that they purport to serve. And they know nothing of the law that they purport to uphold. Now that day was the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath, they said. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. He said to them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They said, Who's the man who said, Take up your bed and walk? Not once did they say, Wow. What has happened to you? I want to tell you something, folks. There are people in churches, good churches like Covenant Presbyterian Church. When God does something great, they don't say, wow, what's happened to you? They say, uh, when did that happen? They get all pious and their voice goes to a more holy level, you know. What were you doing when that happened? You know people like that. They may be close to us right now. Who knows? But they don't say, wow, that's remarkable what God's done for you. It doesn't have to be something like get up and walk. It can just simply be the salvation of your soul. You've been brought to saving faith. You're no longer a sinner like you used to be, but you're now a saint striving to live a holy life in the midst of your sin. A legalist is always looking for, did you do it the right way? Was it in the right place? Did you say the right words? But notice something here. They said, who said take up your bed and walk? 
No reference to the healing. In verse 13, though, John, John comes back in and comments. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was. He doesn't say, now, the man who took up his bed to walk on the Sabbath didn't know who, who told him to do that. No, that's not John. Because John is the beloved. John is the disciple. He's not the legalistic Jew. John says, now, the man who had been healed. See, he didn't see a man breaking the Sabbath because he knew he wasn't. He saw a man who had been touched by the Lord and he was commenting on what the Lord had done for him. So let me ask you a question. Which one are you? Put yourself in that position. Are you the legalist? What time was it? Is this the right day for that? Shouldn't we be doing it this way? Shouldn't we be doing it that way? Or are you the one saying, wow, this is great what the Lord's done. This is wonderful what the Lord's doing in your life. That's not the legalist. The legalist is always just entangled in details. Finally, we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge Jesus' next miracle for this man. And it's real subtle. Afterwards, Jesus found him, the man, in the temple and said to him, See, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. First of all, notice that the man who was healed, Jesus didn't say, Get up, take your pallet, and go to the temple, did he? Say no, because he didn't, because John would have told us. Because Jesus now goes on to the temple, and guess who he finds there? He finds the man. When God does great things for you, the first thing you want to do is go worship him. If you don't want to go worship him every time the opportunity arises, you don't have any clue what the Lord has done for you. You just can't. You can't. You can't be conscious of all the Lord has done for you and spared you from and doing in your life and not go worship him. So this man goes. That's just the natural. When a heart's changed, when a heart is changed toward God, he goes to the temple to worship. And Jesus says, uh, so you're well. Sin no more. Now, he's not threatening him here. Now, look, you are lame, and I fixed that. But if you, if you keep on sinning, and that's the force of the sin no more, if you keep on sinning, I'll send something worse on you than, you than even lameness. I might even make you blind. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is moving. What's what's worse? And by the way, what would have been worse to this man than 38 years unable to move himself? What would blindness have been? Big deal. What, What would have boils? He had boils. That's what people who are invalids and unable to move, they get bed sores. 
No, Jesus is talking about something far worse than anything temporal in this world. He's talking about hell. You go on sinning, you will face everlasting fire. Now, let's put it in the positive. What's Jesus doing here? He's calling the man to repentance. He's calling him ultimately to faith. Don't sin anymore. You remember the rich young man? Jesus said the same thing, didn't he? Go sell everything you own and come follow me. That's the same. That's the equivalent to this. And that rich young man couldn't do it. And he went away sorrowfully. But notice what this man did. This man is like the Gadarene. Remember the Gadarene? Over on the other side of of Galilee, Jesus healed him and he wanted to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, no, but I want you to go go tell the folks who did it for you. And that's what this man did. And this is, he says, the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. He wanted, he wanted them to know who healed him. They'd ask and he didn't know. Now he knows and he wants them to know. He wants Jesus to get credit for what's happened in his life. Now see, it's real easy. You can read through this passage real quickly and just miss a whole bunch of really good stuff. Just slow down. What's John doing here? Well, now he's telling us what he's doing. This is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them. My father is working until now and I am working. That brings us to the last point. The Lord's person work or stumbling block to even the most religious. So what Jesus says here is this. John, John makes the point that here's what's causing the problem is the Sabbath. Now you have to understand something here, don't you? They didn't have an Old Testament view of the Sabbath. You say, but they were Jews and scribes and Pharisees and they didn't have an Old Testament. No, they didn't. They had a Judaistic view of the Sabbath. They had added so many rules to the Bible that it didn't even look like the Bible anymore. Hundreds and hundreds just on the Sabbath. You're like, whoa, really? I thought the Bible says don't add to or take away from. Well, it does, but they didn't listen. They didn't read that part. And sometimes we don't either, do we? You know, that little, I know what the Bible says, but, well, you're about to add to or take away from when you throw the but out there. So keep your but in check. Just keep, don't use it. Just say, I know what the Bible says, and I'm going to ask the Lord to help me. The Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And see, they didn't understand works of mercy and necessity. 
They just knew that you weren't supposed to pick up a, a, a cot and walk so many steps on the Sabbath day. Why'd they know that? Not because they read it in the Bible, but because they'd added it to it. We're going to be at Presbytery on Tuesday. I'm just going to go ahead and blast here. There are going to be people more concerned about the jots and the tittles of our book of church order than they will be about Jesus Christ and lost people. There's just some people like that. Now, I love our book of church order, but it's not the Bible. And sometimes we have to be really careful, don't we? But then, notice Jesus' words. John says, they didn't get the Sabbath right. Jesus says, you don't understand, my father is working until now. What's he talking about? Six days you shall labor, the seventh day the father rested. Well, we read that and we're like, okay. We were just told in Isaiah 58 that we're to rest the whole day. But in our resting, we're also to, if we see something that's, that's, a, a, that's necessary to help someone that's in need, we're to do those things. That's part of our rest on the Sabbath. And deeds of mercy. We have medical people in, in, in our church membership. Sometimes mercy calls them to work on the Lord's day. That's an act of mercy. They're not breaking the Sabbath day in working. Now, if you just decide, hey, I think I'm going to go in and knock out a few things today on work. I've got plenty of free time to be quiet. And it's not a work of mercy or necessity as in something for people like this then that's violating the Lord's day. That's breaking the Sabbath. Because you're not turning your foot to the left or the right to do his own, his pleasure, but you're doing your pleasure. You're doing something that's necessary for you, but not necessary for the Lord. But here's the thing. Ever since, Jesus, ever since the Father made in the space of six days everything and it was very good, he has been enjoying a Sabbath. And that Sabbath includes his preserving all things and his redeeming of his people and this creation. That's what we're to be about. We're to be about preserving and redeeming on the Sabbath. Now here's the kicker. You... you Jesus messing with their Sabbath the way they had contrived it, the way they had, you know, built it up, that was bad enough. My father is working till now, and I am. The minute he threw that I am thing out there, they went crazy. I am working. And they knew what he was saying. And it says so right down here. He was breaking the Sabbath in their mind. But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Legalists always struggle with both the person and the work of our great God. And then 
They didn't understand that the father was what he was doing in this great Sabbath. And so they were seeking all the more to kill Jesus because not only was he breaking read their Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. So, we see the compassion of the Lord. We see the deity of the Lord. We see the Lord's concern for people, regardless of whether they believe or not. And then we see him coming, and and he speaks the truth. You need to sin no more. Because you you don't want that which is worse than being lame for 38 years, namely eternal fire and damnation. Now, what's the opposite of don't sin anymore, but believe? Believe in me. Trust me. And he went out and he told him who did for him. Who healed him? Jesus. It was Jesus who had healed him. The Lord of the Sabbath is compassionate. He's powerful, preserver, and redeemer. He's God. He's man. He can save to the uttermost our entire being, just as he did in this man's life. And now the question is, do you reject him like the Jewish leaders did? Or do you receive him? Do you keep on doing your tradition? Or do you fall in line with his tradition? Everything we need is in Jesus Christ. Here's the beautiful thing. If you reject him, he rejects you. But if you trust him, it doesn't matter who rejects you. He doesn't. And that's ultimately the important thing, isn't it? That he not reject us on that last day, depart from me. Now these, these Jews are some of the very people Jesus said in that last day, there are going to be people say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, this, and this? And some of those things are going to be, didn't we do this? You know, we worked really hard. We added several hundred little accretions to the Sabbath so we'd be sure and keep it all. We just kind of layered it on there. Didn't we do all these great works? And he's going to say, get out of here. I do not know you. And that's the key in the end, isn't it? Does he know you? Not whether you know him or I know him. It's does he know us? Has he accepted us or rejected us? Father, we pray that you give us all faith to receive this message, to hear him. And to be like this man. Regardless of what you do for us, we worship you. Regardless of of where we find ourselves, we tell others your name. Thank you for working until now. We ask you to continue in our own hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.